Father, thank you again for this reminder of this new reality that is, that is only found in the gospel. This new reality that you're, that you're calling each one of us to today. Whether we've been walking with Jesus for many years or whether this is the first time we've heard these words. You're calling us to this. And so give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, this section of Jesus' sermon uh, continues this theme of, of greater righteousness. And so w- whenever we talk about anything that's greater, it always implies that there's a lesser righteousness as well. So the greater righteousness of Jesus is, is, um, is compared to the lesser righteousness of the teachers of the law during Jesus' day. So he's holding this standard up before uh, his, his, his audience, his listeners, and showing them which is greater. And so this section opens up for us uh, what true reality is to look like through the lens of the gospel. And that's the way in which we are to see it. So this is not just for the, for the believer either. Uh, otherwise, uh, you could be sitting there in your unbelief and you could confidently say something like, well, that's one way to live life. That's one way to, to kind of view life. That's one way to kind of put life together. And if that's good for you, I'm happy for you. But that's not for me. So if this was just Jesus giving you another option among many, then you could say that. And you would be right in saying that. But that's not what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is, is not saying in his sermon is that the way of the kingdom is this one option among many that you can choose from. What he is doing is he is holding up the standard of the kingdom of God to which all other paths, all other options, all other ways pale in comparison. None of them can stand up against the kingdom of God. Now, we don't exist as a church so that you have something to do for an hour on Sunday. We don't exist as a church to, to help in, improve your life uh, at, in the world's standard. We don't, we don't exist as a church to, to soothe your guilty conscience from a week that has lived in the world. So you may come in here feeling like that's what you're here for. And I can just tell you this. If you are here because of any of those reasons, you will not stay at Christ the King Church very long. Because we exist to point you to this greater reality that Jesus is pointing us to in the Sermon on the Mount. This this greater righteousness that is only found in Christ Jesus. And it's weighty. It it bears a lot of weight upon us, and you hear it in Jesus' words. But it's a weight that we are called to bring uh, upon the entirety of our life, but it's also a weight that we are called to bring upon the relationships that we have in the world. And you probably saw them right here in the text, all three of them. We, 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 we are to live this righteousness in three ways or towards three different people. One is toward our siblings, meaning our brothers and sisters in Christ. One is toward our Father in heaven. And then the last one is toward our neighbor or toward everyone. So our siblings, our Father, and our neighbor. So first, toward our siblings in verses 1 through 6, the application here is toward those who call themselves Christian. 
And we know this because of the word brother that is used in the text here. It's used three times to signify that this is not just a conversation for everyone, but that this is a family conversation that Jesus is having here. And Jesus wants us to know that, that unity is a mark of the greater righteousness that, righteousness that he has been trying to make clear in his Sermon on the Mount here. Unity is what he's trying to get across to his listeners. So his first command of unity is judge not, or do not judge. Why? Why would that be the, the first thing that Jesus says here for unity? Why would he say, judge not? Well, the only reason, the only conclusion you can come to is because you judge people. You do. You might have done it already. You might be doing it right now as I say that. But you're, we're, we're all tempted to place uh, standards upon people and then judge them accordingly. They are guilty, at least in your eyes, until proven innocent. And the only way to be proven innocent is if they pass your test of innocence, which is impossible. And, and you know that's impossible because it's impossible for yourself because you can't even hold to your own standard of justice. Yet you hold everyone else up to that as well. Jesus was very clear to this, uh, in this line of thinking, when he spoke to the, the teachers of the law during this day, if you, if you wanted to flip over to Matthew 23, you would see this, uh, this great proclamation that Jesus is making with all of these, these woes that he is pronouncing upon, upon the teachers of the law because this is what they're doing. They're holding a standard up to everyone around them that they cannot even keep themselves. And Jesus says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites. And the reason you aren't to judge in this way is quite simple, and it's, it's so that you are not judged in the same way. Because the judgment you are placing on someone is not your own judgment per se. You might think, well, I have this standard, and it's, it's an innocent standard because I expect my spouse to act this way. I expect my kids to act this way. I expect everyone around me to act this way and to treat me in this way. You may think, because you have that line of thinking, that this is your judgment. But in reality, what you are doing is you are placing the judgment of God upon those around you. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be judged by others, with the same impossible measure that you judge them, go ahead and do it. Because you will be judged by them. You will have the same standard held up to you. And I can guarantee you, if you choose to live that way, that your life is already miserable or will be miserable. Because what you're doing is pronouncing another person guilty before God. And you have set yourself up as this arbiter of the pronouncement. You have set yourself up as the judge, not God. And that's dangerous territory, Jesus says. So what does Jesus say to do instead but to look at yourself? Because what Jesus says at the same time, he says, judge not. But he also is saying 
that we are to judge. This is, not a, this is not a way in which we get out of judging others. We are to judge, but it is something we have to do because that's something we have to do to keep unity within the church and to protect the church. So some of as we wor- we're working our way in our missional communities through Mark Dever's book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and I know for our missional community we are on, we are on Mark 7, which is church discipline. That is, that is a way in which we are judging those in the church. We do it in love, but it's a way in which we we are to keep unity within the church, but also to protect the church. So Paul gives us some help here when he instructs the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside the church. Purge the evil person from among you. So what Jesus is ruling out here is not judgment, but one's approach to judgment. Namely, what Jesus is ruling out here is, is, the pri- is pride that, that sees yourself as better than others. Because that's what you're doing when you judge someone else in a way that is not filtered through the scriptures is that you see yourself as above them. You see yourself as better than them. And so you can point your finger down to them and tell them to get right. Or else. Again, Paul's instruction, this time from Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, on how we are to judge rightly. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Paul is saying this is how you are to restore them, restore them with gentleness, but at the same time, you need to be careful that you don't fall into temptation as well, because what you'll be tempted to do is to see yourself as better than that person you are restoring with gentleness. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and if you, if you hang around me for very long, especially if you serve as an elder at some point, Paul uh, instructs the church uh, to do this in a certain way. And so this is kind of my pastoral filter when I come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because Paul is letting the brothers know, and it's not, he's not just talking to elders here, he's talking to the entire church, but he's letting them know that there are different approaches to different people at different times. So 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and so I would encourage you to jot this one down and to remember that because I know we're all kind of itching sometimes to, to go and confront people in our lives, and we want, we want to confront them in a way that's biblical, and this is a great way in which to frame how you're going to do that. So Paul says, and we urge you brothers, and you could add sisters there as well, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak and be patient with all of them. So admonish the idle. Uh, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak, but be patient with them all. So Paul is saying, look, there are certain, certain people are going to be in certain situations in life where they are idle, where they are being lazy and rebellious, and they need to be admonished, which modern-day language means they just need a good kick in the pants. And sometimes that's appropriate. 
but we wouldn't kick the pants of the faint-hearted because that would crush them. We wouldn't, we wouldn't encourage the weak because we would just con- be continuing to encourage them in whatever they are weak at. And so we need to come alongside them and help them. And we definitely would not admonish the weak. So if you want to do this right, Jesus says you must work on yourself first. Because if you don't, Jesus says... You are like the scribes and the Pharisees, that you are an actor or an actress. You are a hypocrite. You play a part on the stage for others to see. You say one thing and you do the opposite. As the writer Colin Hansen says, he says, it's the difference between pointing fingers and helping hands. This is what he says in his book, Blind Spots. He says, we all have blind spots. It's so easy to see the fault in someone else or in another group, but so difficult to see the limitations in ourselves. Unless you learn to see the faults in yourself and your heroes, you can't appreciate how God has gifted other Christians. Only then can you understand that Jesus died for this body, referring to the church, which only accepts the sick. Only then can we together meet the challenges of our rapidly changing world. So Jesus gives us a two-step process in verse 5 to get there. He says, first, number one, take the log out of your own eye. Then, second, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Because your brother or your sister may have a speck in their eye that needs to be removed. And you may be the person who needs to do the removing. But you've got some work to do first before you can do that. So it's, it's a two-step process that always starts with yourself. There is never a scenario when you don't have to, to examine your own heart first. So we know from chapter 6, verses 22 through 23, that we can use the words I and heart interchangeably. And this is a perfect example of that here. Because Jesus is saying, examine your own, own heart first and seek to do the work necessary before confronting your brother or sister. This is how Paul says it to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So looking at yourself first before you go looking at others. So how do you do this? Let me give you, a, let me give you three suggestions, okay? Well, and just to kind of to, to frame it in this way. You need to examine your heart with humility by becoming aware of your own faults, your own weaknesses, your own blind spots, and then repent of them. We all have them. There is never a moment where on earth that we are going to say that we've arrived. None of us can say that. 
We all have blind spots. We all have weaknesses. We all have, have besetting sins that continues to plague us day in and day out. So we all need to repent. So, so the way in which you need to do this is, one, is a daily confession of specific sin in your life. Sitting down every day at some point in the day to confess. Not just on Sundays when we do it together. All right, so another way in which you, 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 you can, you can kind of churn this up in your life is, is to get some honest friends. And one of those friends might be your spouse. And I would suggest one of those friends be your spouse if you are married to point out they know you the best. Okay? And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Happened this week to other people I know. <laughs> so get some honest friends. One of those can be your spouse who are loyal to Jesus. First and foremost, they're not concerned about uh, how you're going to feel about them after you speak truth in their life, uh, who aren't afraid of you, and who love you. So loyal to Jesus, aren't afraid of you, and they love you. And that last one's key. They have to love you. And these are people who are going to point out your blind spots to you. Say you're missing it here. Have you ever thought about it? These are people with whom you could say your blind spots are not safe around them. They're going to see it. And most of the time, I would say, these people are found within your local church. These are people who are covenanted with you. We say it in our confession, in our our, um, statement of faith, that we repeat every, or a covenant, sorry, that we repeat every at every member's meeting and that I know all of you have uh, on, on your refrigerator at home, um, that, that we will do this with one another. That we will love each other enough that we, will, that we will confront each other in our sins when we see them, that we will point out our blind spots and that we'll do all of that in love. So Colin Hansen again in his book says, a danger for all of us is to cluster around people with similar personalities, and I would add, similar sin struggles, who only reinforce your strength or reinforce your sin while turning a blind eye to your weaknesses. There's two applications there. The final application there, uh, I would say, is to be open to having respect removed. And that's tough. That's really, really hard. And I know, when, when, and it's happened to me plenty of times. Uh, I have friends like this. Um, it, it's be open. When someone comes to you, be humble enough to say, I am a broken person. I am a sinner saved by grace. And this dear brother or sister loves me enough to tell me this to make me more like Jesus. Not to condemn me, not to make me feel stupid, not to shame me, but they're here to make me more like Jesus. So be open to having respect removed. Okay, on the verse 6. Verse 6 is a peculiar verse. Uh, It doesn't seem to flow with the narrative of the sermon right here in this section. But if we consider what Jesus is trying to get at here, 
it begins to make a lot more sense to us. Because at, at a thematic level, verse 6 fits as it relates to this idea of evaluating properly. So in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is calling his listeners to evaluate themselves properly before evaluating others. So Jesus is saying, judge yourself first, essentially. Evaluate yourself first. And so here, Jesus is calling his listeners to evaluate who they are addressing as well. So this is the balancing wisdom to to verses 3 through 5, because it keeps us uh, from becoming undiscerning. Because that when you hear that, when you hear that, and, I, and I've seen it over and over, there's memes that are made about this, that only God will judge me and, and things like that. But, but when you hear this warning of judge not, what Jesus is not saying here is judge never. What Jesus wants us to do when he says judge not is to pause, examine ourselves, and then go to that brother or sister who needs to hear. It's not to judge never. Or it's not to judge the, the, the wrong person. So, so what winds up happening when we do that is we waste time towards someone who doesn't even care. So you'll end up throwing what is good and beautiful and true, these pearls that Jesus talks about, the pearls of the gospel, before those who will just trample it under their feet. Or worse, they might even attack you for the words that you speak to them. Jesus says, beware of these types of Listen to the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 9, verses 7 through 8. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. And that's how you can tell the difference. If someone is, is, is not receiving well your, 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 uh, your judgment or your, your counsel to them, uh, they may be a scoffer. But if they receive it and they're thankful for it and they seek to change because of it, they are probably someone who is wise and who will love you back because of it, even if they're hard words. So simply, we must use discernment in our judgment so that we judge both humbly and rightly in such a way that will draw those who are judged by us closer to Christ. Because that's the goal, right? Our goal is to move people closer to Jesus, not further away. And so this second relationship that we are called to to bring the weight of righteousness toward is, is toward our Heavenly Father. And this helps us uh, in, in, in both of these relationships, one towards our, our brothers and sisters in Christ and then later towards our neighbor. But in verses 7 through 11 and throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Father is a constant presence in Jesus' sermon. So in chapter 6, we have the reminder to pray to our Heavenly Father. And then in chapter 6, verse 32, um, it reminds us that our Father knows everything that we need. And he's going to give those things to us, and we have no reason to be anxious or worried about what we need. And so verses 7 through 11 here actually make the same basic argument 
that chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 are making. That the heavenly Father will provide for all the needs of his children. And so in verse 7, Jesus gives us this, this comprehensive way uh, in which to interact with the Father. And it's, this, is, this is great. He says, he says to, to ask, to do three things, to ask, to seek, and to knock. And I'm not going to go into great detail about every one of those, but I think those are just three words to kind of keep in mind. When you are relating to your heavenly Father, Jesus is, is, is saying, this is how you are to address him. This is, this is how you are to go after him. This is how you are to ask of him. Because I, I'm sure that, that with just certain presuppositions that we all kind of carry around with this, that you might think, when you hear these words of Jesus, that I can't approach the Father in that way. I'm, I'm not worthy to do that. I, I'm a sinner. I'm not holy. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a priest. I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. I'm not, a, I'm not anyone of any kind of value. But Jesus says, if you are God's beloved son or daughter... This is how you have to come to your Father. Asking, seeking, and knocking. Not groveling. Not begging. And not pining after the Father. So as a father, as a, as, as a child of the Father, you are mere, you, you're not merely invited to come and do this. Jesus isn't just inviting you to do this. Jesus is telling his listeners, this is how you do it. This is how you're supposed to come to the Father. You are, you are supposed to come to ask for your needs to be met. You're supposed to do that. You're supposed to, to seek after him. You're supposed to, to seek the kingdom first. You're supposed to knock on the door. You're supposed to do that. And then Jesus follows it up with this. When you do ask, no doubt, it will be given to you. When, when you do seek after the Father, you will find him. And when you knock, the door will be opened. Every time. So this, this, is, this is your constant respite in the midst of this life Jesus has called you to. Because the Christian life isn't easy. It's hard. So when the, when the world hates you, as Jesus says at the beginning of the sermon, he says the world will hate you. The world will persecute you. When the world hates you, when, when you are anxious about life because those anxieties are coming, I know because I've had some this week. And when you're called to live in such a countercultural way, just pushing against the grain of the culture every single day, remember that you are held in the Father's arms. A father who, who will never leave you. A father who will never forsake you. A father who is, who is not difficult. Who is not abusive. Who will never speak harshly to you. Who always loves you. And Jesus illustrates this for us in verses 9 through 11. By showing that if, if an earthly father, he even says to them, look, you're evil. And, and you have children, and you still give to your children. You still give them good things. When they ask for bread, or, 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 or they, you don't give them a rock. 
You don't give them, you don't give them poisonous snakes when they ask for something that's going to benefit them. Even you who are evil will give good things to your children. And then he says, how much more will your heavenly father give to you? Way more, way more than I will give to my kids. And this is what we need to know as, as Jesus kind of uh, calls us or casts us out to live in this world because we're not just, this isn't just like insider information or this just isn't uh, uh, beneficial for just those within the walls of, of, of a local church. This is to benefit everybody, everyone that we come in contact with, every neighbor that we have. And so you have verse 12 here. Now, you may know this verse as the golden rule. Uh, it's one of the many, many biblical phrases that has made the crossover into broader culture pretty easily. Not many people are going to argue with you about the golden rule. I remember this, this, uh, this hanging over the door of my fifth grade public school classroom. I, didn't, I had no idea it was in the Bible at the, at the time. Um, but I remember, I, I can see it in my mind now, I remember just reading it every single day and thought, That's a, that seems like a nice thing uh, to say, but rarely practiced, especially amongst fifth graders. But it's still hard to practice today, isn't it? Even within uh, the church, even here at Christ the King with, with all of these lovely people. It's hard to practice today. You might think, yes, I would, I, would love, I would love to be treated with kindness and, and dignity and respect and love, but I don't think this person will, that I'm showing this to will, will reciprocate. In fact, they may take advantage of my kindness. They may take advantage of my love. They may, they may treat me like a doormat and do the opposite of what I'm doing to them. And you know what? They might. And actually, I would probably go so far as to say they probably will. No matter how humbly you approach them, no matter how well you are treating that person, they might do that. But Jesus' command doesn't say, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, so that they would do well towards you. Because the goal of this command here is not to be treated well. The goal is God's glory. And to live in such a way, Jesus says, is the way of the law and the prophets. So in other words, that's Jesus saying, this is the way the entire Bible calls you to live as a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says later in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. And a second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As these two commands, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. All of the scriptures depend on these two commands. And then later, Paul confirms this, this way of living in two statements from his epistles. That are, that are likely his reflections upon these very words in Jesus' sermon. So the first is in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, when Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, 
for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then more explicitly, Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what this, what this pattern of the scriptures is telling us is that the way of Jesus, which is the way of love, is self-denial. The way of Jesus, the way of love, is self-denial. This is hard because we really love ourselves. In fact, there is no one else in all of the world that you love more than yourself. Your comfort, your safety, your well-being, your pleasure, by default, always come first. Always. And you may be arguing, like, well, no, no, I think, I think my children come, come before I do. I sacrifice my life for them, or I sacrifice my life for my husband or my wife or, or my parents or my friends. Um, but I would just say, Jesus isn't saying to you, love your neighbor like you love your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or your friends. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others the way that you want to be treated. John Calvin says, Our very nature inclines us toward self-love. As a result, we don't easily deny ourselves or our desires in order to seek the good of others. So if you can't get to a place of self-denial, Calvin is saying, you can't properly do to others what you would have them do towards you. So I would say, reflect upon that love that you have for yourself. Think about how well you, you love yourself. Think about how much you think about yourself. Think about that, that next thing that you're going to buy that is in, currently in your Amazon cart. And you know that's true. For yourself. And then go, how, do, how can I love others in this way? How can I take this love that I have for myself and, and love others in this way? And I think, I think this is what Jesus is getting at. When, if you look back at um, uh, chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount in verses 38 through 42, I think this is what Jesus is getting at under retaliation. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not risk the one, resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, sh would sue you, take your tunic. Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And I would say even there that Jesus is speaking mostly to those who are outside the church, mostly uh, to those who would, who would want to take advantage of you. How much more is he, taught, is he speaking to us uh, about within the church? How much more should we be doing that for those here as well as our neighbors? And I know just the, this isn't in my notes, so this could go haywire here, but 
I just know that for a lot of people and a lot of you, because I've, I've heard most of your stories, that a lot of you have been hurt. You've been hurt by people, and most of, that time, most of that hurt has come from the church. Because we have failed to practice this type of love within the church. So just keep that in mind. And I, I, and I just think, I, I, I truly believe this, and I'm confident in this, that as, as we begin to, to live in this way toward each other and towards, and towards our neighbor, that you will begin to see more and more the love that your Father has for you in Christ. It, it will begin to open your eyes more and more. It, be, it will begin to make things more clear for you because it, it's, it's Jesus who models this for us all. It's Jesus who has paid the ultimate price of self-denial, and he has done this willingly. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9. This is what Paul says Jesus has done for you. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you guys all know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, which means Jesus is the richest person in all of the world and all of history, with everything at his disposal. That though he was rich, sitting at the Father's right hand and the throne in heaven, yet for your sake, his neighbor, he became poor. So that, and this is his purpose, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The ultimate self-denial. To bring, to, to bring the weight of righteousness to bear upon your brothers and sisters. To bring, to bring the weight of righteousness into your relationship with your Father in heaven. And to bring the weight of righteousness to bear upon your neighbors. You must have the weight of Christ's righteousness bearing upon you. Or none of that happens. And it's a weight that Jesus says. That is light and where you find your ultimate rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful that we can pray to a heavenly Father who, who, who loves us um, despite ourselves. Who loves us even even though um, that we were all your enemies, um, that we were walking in darkness, that we were walking in the opposite direction of your love for us, uh, even though all of that was happening, you you still sent your son, your only son, to die for us. You still sent your son so that his blood could be what seals our inheritance, our adoption uh, in heaven. But you still sent your son um, to give up his, to give his righteousness over to us so that when you look at, at us, you see his righteousness and, and not our sinfulness. So God, I pray that we would all live out of the weight of that righteousness that has been placed upon us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.